This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. And so we went and found this Mongol in Mexico, beat him with a baseball bat, duct taped his ankles and his feet together, stuffed him in a shallow grave in the desert, and shot him in the head with the gun we were given. And we took pictures of that. We cut the bloody Mongol vest off the victim, came back and delivered it as evidence to the Hells Angels of the murder that we had committed on behalf of the gang. And they believed it and they bought it and they embraced it. From Foreign Policy, welcome back to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. Jay Dobbins was a special agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. In 2002, he went undercover to infiltrate the Hells Angels biker gang as part of an operation called Black Biscuit. Members of the gang were suspected of a series of crimes, including running drugs, trafficking in stolen goods, and killing rival gang members. Dobbins spent more than two years undercover, a period in which he says he constantly worried about getting exposed and killed by the gang. Here's his story. When the Hells Angels investigation started and the opportunity was presented to me to lead the undercover portion of that investigation, at that point, I already had 15 years of undercover experience under my belt. I had been on the street and bought everything from Saturday night special pea shooters to shoulder launched rockets. I'd infiltrated street gangs. I had worked uh, home invasion investigations. I had played the hitman in murder for hire cases. I had already established a criminal reputation on the street in some of the areas that we wanted to work. I've never been the best undercover operative out there. What I had going for me is that I was always willing to try. The Hells Angels are a part of Americana. They're a part of our culture. They're a part of our history. You know, they started very simply and grew. They got quite a bit of notoriety bodyguarding the Rolling Stones at the Altamont Motor Speedway concert in 1969, where they ended up killing a member of the audience in this bodyguarding role. And that really put them in the limelight. Movie stars wanted to hang out with them. Rock stars wanted to hang out with them, wanted to party with them, wanted to be seen with them. And really, in their, you know, now probably 70 plus year history, they're a combination of traditional organized crime, La Cosa Nostra, the mafia, and street gangs. They've learned from both. And, you know, these guys, 
They may not be necessarily book smart, but they have their PhDs in violence and intimidation. They're the masters of it, and they know how to use it. And they're saturated into any element of crime that you can imagine that involves money. From murder to rape to extortion to murder for hire to gun running, drug running, prostitution, human trafficking. If you name it, if there's money to be made from it, the Hells Angels have their hands in it somewhere. They went from a small group of brothers in San Bernardino, California, to a worldwide organized crime syndicate. The Hells Angels have members on every continent of the planet. At the time Operation Black Biscuit started, the Hells Angels in Arizona and on the West Coast were operating with impunity and with extreme violence. So the goal was to find out who was committing the violence, who was ordering the violence, who was benefiting or profiting from the violence, and then what tools were they using to commit the violence. The design and objective of Operation Black Biscuit was to get next to the Hells Angels and run alongside them to gain the evidence and information that we needed to make criminal cases. There was actually two infiltrations within one case. We started off, uh, myself and my undercover partners infiltrated an outlaw motorcycle gang called the Solo Angels, which were based in Tijuana, Mexico. And in the simplest terms, we extorted and forced our way into the Solo Angels for the sole purpose of wearing their patch and claiming their membership for credibility in the eyes of the Hells Angels. The Solo Angels were involved in their own crime. They had their own criminal network going. That was not the objective. The objective was to use the Solo Angels so that we would be believable and so that we could quickly enter into the Hells Angels world with street cred. And so that's what we did. We, you know, we extorted and muscled our way in on the Solo Angels and then showed up in the presence of the Hells Angels with some legitimacy and some believability. My um, integration into that world was to some extent trial by fire. I was not a biker investigator, so I was learning to a large extent on the fly. I had an appearance that was believable. I had a demeanor and a way of carrying myself that was believable. But I also knew from my previous undercover experience that the worst thing you can do is to try to convince someone that you're something that you're truly not. So for me to go in and try to convince the Hells Angels that I was some slick, experienced biker, that would have been a huge mistake. So I played it very straightforward. I told the Hells Angels, I'm really not a biker. I'm not all that good at this. I need you guys to show me how things work in this world. Man, I'm a gun runner. I do murder for hires. You know, I do extortions. I'm lined up with these guys 
because my association with the Solo Angels allows me to run guns more freely into Mexico. And the fact that I humbled myself and was very open and honest about my shortcomings, there was nothing there not to believe because I was telling them the truth. Well, the objective as we gained trust and gained loyalty and, and built friendships, in some case built love, was to collect evidence, whether that be through uh, electronically recorded conversations, whether that be through the purchase or sale of guns or narcotics, whether that be the invitation to be involved in violent crimes on behalf of the gang, and anything and everything that you can imagine in between. The goal was to build evidence for ultimately what would be a RICO prosecution. RICO is the Racketeering Influenced Corrupt Organizations Statute. It was designed to target the mafia. And what it did is it allowed the government to indict and charge members of an organization from the top to the bottom and make them all accountable for the actions of one. You know, we're neck deep with these guys at that point. Gun deals, drug deals, uh, being sent on uh, extortions and murder assignments and all kinds of compromising crimes. So at this point in the investigation, some members of the Solo Angels had spoken to members of the Hells Angels and said, these guys in Arizona, we think they're counterfeit. They came out here, they wined us, they dined us, they impressed us, we made them members of our gang, and then we never saw them again. All they do is spend time with you guys. And so when that word got back to the Hells Angels in Arizona, I was told that I was uh, to meet one of the Hells Angels leaders in Arizona and and explain myself. And it really looked like the case was done. It looked like it was an unsurvivable situation. And I went to that meeting truly believing that I was being set up for an assassination. If they believed that I was an informant or a government operative, and they knew the level of criminality they had been involved with me, I thought like, man, I don't know, this is survivable. But I was so deep and so out of control at that point in time in the operation, I'm not sure I even valued my life anymore, to be quite honest with you. I was so blinded by the mission. And I went into that meeting expecting something tragic to happen. And I just relied on all the skills and tactics and technique and tradecraft that I had developed over the years and just laid out my story to this Hell's Angel and said, man, you've known me for years. We've done all kinds of crimes together. I'm not pretend. Here I am standing in front of you, addressing these accusations. And through my ability to communicate with him and based on the trust and loyalty that I had built up, at that very moment, the Hell's Angels I was meeting with got on the phone and called the other members 
and said, man, you know what? You got it wrong. This guy's legit. We've got to trust him. But that was also a huge turning point in the case because I was told, look, I'm vouching for you and I'm sticking up for you to my brothers, but you are no longer allowed to exist as a solo angel. I'm not going to play this game with you anymore. You either come with us and you become a hell's angel or you get out of this state. And if I ever see your face here again, I'm going to kill you. We overcame this obstacle, but it led to a whole new set of problems because now instead of having some control and being alongside the Hells Angels, we were forced to move inside their organization where we had no control. When this ultimatum was given, we went from being near equals with independence to the very last man on the totem pole, which meant starting off as a hang around, which is nothing but that. You're a person that's hanging around the gang and you are deciding if their lifestyle is what you want and they're deciding if you are someone they want to allow to grow closer. And so in that hangaround status, the most menial job is your responsibility. My phone rang at three o'clock in the morning and one of the Hells Angels said, I want a chocolate milkshake. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? McDonald's opens at 10 o'clock. I'll go get you one. He's like, no, you don't understand hang around. I want a chocolate milkshake right now. So I'm running around trying to find someplace open to get a Hell's Angel, a chocolate milkshake. And then I finally found one at a 24 hour jack in the box and took it to him. And when I got there, he's like, hey, I changed my mind. I don't want it. And all it was was a test drive. He wanted to see, am I going to answer my phone at three o'clock in the morning? Am I going to react and respond to his instructions? Am I going to do what I'm told when I'm told? He didn't want a milkshake. He just wanted to test me. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. We return to Jay Dobbins, the ATF special agent who infiltrated the Hells Angels gang. One of the most perilous, treacherous points in time, stages in the investigation, was when I was sent out and ordered to participate in a murder on behalf of the gang. Um, I got a call. The Hells Angels membership said, meet me at the clubhouse and bring all your weapons and do it right now. My response is, well, what's going on? Click, hang up. There is no response. So I show up at the clubhouse and I was told that some members of the Bandidos motorcycle gang were going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada, and they were going to be there without the Hells Angels permission. 
and the Hells Angels believed that they owned Nevada and that no other gang could come through there, pass through there, or engage in any activity there without their permission. So they were going to go send a message. And I was told by the Hells Angels leadership, you're going to go to Las Vegas. This is where these banditos are going to show up. And when they get there, you better shoot them before they get the kickstands down on their motorcycles. And guess what? We're going to be waiting and hiding in the wings. And if you don't shoot them, we're going to shoot you. So we went forward and about halfway between Phoenix and Las Vegas, I was able to get a hold of Joe Slatella, who was a brilliant case agent, tell him what was going on. And everything that the Hells Angels had told me to that point was true. But Joe Slatella was able to arrange for the, the banditos that were our targets. He arranged for them to be traffic stopped and held on the side of the road. And I just proceeded with my instructions. The banditos didn't show up. What the Hells Angels didn't know is that I had a hand in preventing them from showing up there. But in their eyes, man, I had done what I was told. I was there ready to take care of business. So I was able to turn that to my advantage and build credibility from it. So I ultimately became a prospect, which is, you know, you're, we were told when we were made prospects that you are a member without his full patch. Like all our rules, all our responsibilities, all our bylaws, all our protocols now apply to you. So whatever you do, you're doing it under the umbrella of the Hells Angels. So you're in essence a member who's still trying to make his way and convince the full patch members that you're worthy of membership. The patch system in the outlaw biker world is, is truly amazing and it's an art all in and of itself. The bottom part of the patch, the bottom rocker, where it will signify where you're from or what charter you're in or what state you're from. So when I became a prospect, I got an Arizona bottom rocker. Ultimately, you're trying to become a full patch, which means that you have earned the right and have the authority to sew the entire Hells Angels patch on the back of your vest, which includes the top rocker, which says Hells Angels, and then the center patch, which is the winged death head. Then the front patches oftentimes have your rank within the organization, your location, the charter you're in, and then literally hundreds of different patches flash that signify different things you've done, different awards. It signifies everything to them. It's their religion. Like representing the Hells Angels and wearing that full patch is the highest honor that any of them could ever imagine in their lifetime. And that is why they are so willing, and in some cases eager, to die for it. Their membership, which is signified by that patch, is the most important thing in their world. 
it was well known that the Hells Angels had a long-standing feud with the Mongols. So my question was, what are my orders? What are my instructions if I cross paths with a Mongol? And the response was, it's your job to kill him. That's what we do. We kill Mongols. So for close to two years, I put that information in my back pocket and held it. So we're, getting, we're growing closer to the end of the investigation, and the pressure is on to really do something of significance. So I went to the Hells Angels leadership, the same ones that told me it was my job to kill Mongols, and told them a story. I said, there's a Mongol in Mexico. He's running his mouth. He's saying that he you know, whipped our ass at Laughlin that he's going to start running Mexican methamphetamine right up into Arizona. There's nothing we can do about it. I've got connections through my solo angel days in Mexico, and I want to go down there to kill him. That plan was met with full enthusiasm. Everybody was, yeah, right on. Go handle that business. They gave me a gun that had an obliterated serial number on it so that it couldn't be traced. They told me how they wanted the murder done. They told me how I should act after the murder. Take the gun apart. Piece it out. Don't leave it all in one place. And so we went and found this Mongol in Mexico, reported to be in Mexico, beat him with a baseball bat, duct taped his ankles and his feet together, stuffed him in a shallow grave in the desert, and shot him in the head with the gun we were given. And we took pictures of that. We cut the bloody Mongol vest off the victim, came back and delivered it as evidence to the Hells Angels of the murder that we had committed on behalf of the gang. And they believed it and they bought it and they embraced it. And at this time being a prospect, the Hells Angels membership I was with said, man, you showed that you have what it takes. You took care of business. One of the Hells Angels I was with took his vest off and put it on my shoulders and said, you're a Hells Angels now. Welcome to the gang. You're one of us. What they didn't know is that everything was fabricated. It was all a giant hoax. We went outside of Phoenix into the desert. We took a member of our task force. We put a Mongol vest on him. We duct taped him. We put him in a shallow grave. We had a homicide detective use some fake blood and some fake parts from a butcher shop to make it appear that he'd been beaten and shot. We photographed it, took all the evidence of this fabricated murder back to the Hells Angels and then convinced murderers that we had committed a murder on their behalf. It was super important for several reasons. Um, they were involved in a murder of a rival. They had facilitated the murder of the rival by providing us the gun. They had authorized it. Uh, they had sanctioned it. Then when they became aware of it, they helped us destroy the evidence of the murder. So it was that big, you know, ring on the merry-go-round that we had been trying to grab at 
that we finally got our finger hooked in. And the case, in my opinion, was just getting to the point where now we were going to really start doing some big things. We'd gain their trust. I realize now, looking back, that I became addicted to the risk involved uh, in an unhealthy way. The risk and the drama and the tension and the peril, the, the life and death elements of the assignments I took became my heroin. It was my narcotic. It got where I had to have that in my life. And every time I took a risk and survived it, it was never enough. I needed more the next time. And I kept pushing the envelope and pushing it and pushing it to uh, ultimately to an unhealthy place. But I was uh, consumed and addicted to risk. I said prayers a lot during this case, but it was always the same prayer. It was God, find the most dangerous, treacherous, violent person you can find and put me in their path and let me see if I can do something about it. That was the prayer I repeated to myself over and over at that point in my life. If the only time you're talking to God is when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. Operation Black Biscuit lasted uh, roughly two years. We had a ton of evidence at that point. The dangers were like going through the roof. At that point, I think probably eight or 10 members of the Hells Angels who we were associated with, friends with, had been murdered during the course of our investigation. We were around violence and violent people all the time. The price tag of the investigation to run something this massive was growing enormous. And so when all those factors came together, it was decided that we were going to close the case down, that we had what we needed. It was ultimately the, the heartbreak of the case. After all the blood, sweat, tears, time, time away from our families, the government internally, we sabotaged our own case. The agency and Joe Slatella got into a dispute with the prosecutors on how the case should be prosecuted, how the evidence should be handled, how the informants should be revealed. And this internal argument ultimately destroyed all of our work and put us in a position where it was very difficult now to take this case into a courtroom because the sides of the government weren't getting along. And so the prosecutors started issuing plea agreements, started reducing charges, started dismissing charges. So based on the facts, the evidence, the testimony of the agents involved, that case, that RICO prosecution is every bit as winnable today as it was when that case ended in July of 2003. We just never were given the opportunity to fully present it. 
I'll say this, in today's world, in 2020, the Hells Angels are every bit as alive and well and viable as they've ever been in their history. They're better at staying out of the limelight. They're better at conducting their business behind the scenes, out of sight. Um, but to be honest with you, uh, Jay Dobbins, Operation Black Biscuit, were nothing but a speed bump in the history of the Hells Angels. We did nothing but just slow them down temporarily. They're arguably bigger and better and stronger today than they were before our investigation. In many ways, we empowered them. We showed them some of the techniques that are being used against them and we helped make them smarter. I was an undercover federal agent for 27 years. I'll tell you a story that sums it up for me personally. My son, who was about eight years old at the time, every time I'd get ready to leave and go back out to the street, he would run out in the yard and grab a rock out of the yard and say, Dad, don't leave yet. And he'd bring me a, a rock. And I collected all those rocks over the years, and I kept them with me. I had one of Jackie's rocks in my pocket at all times. I had them in the saddlebags of my motorcycle. I had them in my undercover car, in the undercover house. I was handing them out to members of the task force. And I was saying, we have all this violence and danger swirling around us, but here we are, we're surviving. There's something about the blessings that Jackie's putting on these rocks. There's good luck on these rocks. So please keep this with you. So I'm getting ready to leave, and just like hundreds of times before, Jackie comes running up, and he's like, Dad, don't leave yet. I have a rock for you. I've been saving this one. It's special. And he hands me this rock, and it's shaped like a heart. He's like, this one is the best one. And every time you think someone's going to shoot you or hurt you or stab you, put your hand in there and touch it. And that's like me being there to help you fight back against them. And this little boy is standing in my driveway, no shirt, no shoes, and tears start running down his face. And so I'm a 40 plus year old father trying to comfort my eight year old son. Man, I, I didn't know what to say. That is what I had done to my family. Jay Dobbins spent some two decades with the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives Agency. He describes his experiences in the book, No Angel, My Harrowing Undercover Journey in the Inner Circle of the Hell's Angels. 
I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. Our I Spy team includes Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. iSpy at foreignpolicy.com. iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. Next week on iSpy, FBI Special Agent Ali Sufan is sent to question a high-level jihadi captured in Pakistan and comes face-to-face with the CIA torture program. One day I came to the site and I see this big coffin in the hallway and my colleague from the agency was just there looking at it. And I said, what is this? And he said, well, what do you think? You know, the guy want to put Abu Zubaydah in it. That's next week on iSpy. I'm Margot Martindale.